This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. CBS presents America Changed Forever with CBS News correspondent Jeff Pegues. All right. I was hoping to start this program off with something holiday-like as we are in that post-Thanksgiving pre-Christmas period. But there was a report that caught my eye this past week, and I think it's it's important. No matter what community you, you live in, it's important. It's about our police. It's about how we train police. And here's what this report is saying. Two plus years after George Floyd's death, police training is still lacking. You'd think that after George Floyd was killed in Minneapolis, after politicians, police officials, community leaders called for better policing post-George Floyd's death, you'd think that training would have gotten better. But according to this report from a respected organization, it hasn't. What this report is saying is that the system currently in place is built to train officers quickly and cheaply. Think about that. That's an important and troubling statement. What this report is saying is that communities across this country are still not doing enough to train police officers to do the job to the best of their ability. That's essentially what it is saying. And it's not only about the people that police encounter on a day-to-day -day basis and keeping them safe, but it's also about keeping police officers safe. Police departments in other parts of the world, they spend more money and more time training their police officers so that these deadly confrontations are less likely to happen. So this is an important topic, and that's why I wanted to talk about it. It's, it's not, again, it's not like, you know, a feel-good holiday news story, but it's important in every community across this country. 
And as I said before, it's important about, you know, when it comes to keeping community members safe and keeping police officers safe. Because as you know, I've been covering law enforcement for decades now. I wrote that book, Black and Blue, where I talked about police training and the the relationship between the black community and police. So this is a, a subject that is important to me because I know it is a common denominator in so many communities across this country. And there was someone I interviewed in my book, and I knew I had to get him in my book because he's one of those experts in, you know, he, he's, he doesn't come at this from a political perspective. He is the executive director of the Police Executive Research Forum, Chuck Wexler. Thanks for being with us, Chuck. Great to speak to you, Jeff. Great to speak to you. All right. This report, I can't say I'm surprised because despite all of the outrage after George Floyd's death and the calls to reform police departments, what this report to me says is that there really hasn't been that much change. How do you respond to that? Well, I think on some levels... Some departments are changing. I mean, you've got 18,000 police departments. You have no national standards. But training fundamentally over the past 25 years has evolved in bits and pieces. But fundamentally, thinking about what the police do and how we, have think, we think about use of force differently today, training is not addressing that issue. And that is, that's, that's what we found. There are too many academies that still teach the way they have traditionally. Training is splintered. Uh, and, the, and the philosophy of the academy may not align with the philosophy of the agency. And if you look at the amount of time American police devote to training, it's like about six months at the maximum. And you compare that to Germany or Japan, or other countries, it's almost four times as much as that. So um, this, is, this is where we're at. When something happens in policing, traditionally what is said is we need more training. But what happens if the more training isn't really addressing the real issue? Well, why is it these new recruits spend so little time training in this country. As you note, there has been this call to increase training after every one of these incidents, whether it's Michael Brown or George Floyd or Freddie Gray in Baltimore. So what is going on in these training academies that it, that they can't increase the training time? Is it that there is pressure in these communities to get these officers out on the streets? Well, I think I think there's a number of things going on right now, Jeff. First of all, this report comes in the middle of a major staffing issue in this country. You have police departments, large and small, which are seeing a reduction, significant reduction in hiring and an increase in resignations and retirements. So you have this workforce which is shrinking. Into that mix, you have you know the challenge of hiring officers. Well. You know, the whole process of hiring officers and training them can take almost a year. So if you're talking about increasing training while at the same time we're looking at a shrinking workforce, it's almost like a combustible mixture. At the same time, if we continue to train the same way we have for the last 20 years, we're going to get the same results. 
and 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 so that there needs to be an investment there needs to be a realization that at the state and federal level we have really been underfunding what's necessary for a job that at, at the end of the day makes life and death decisions so you know for all of those reasons i really think that we asked ourselves why do these incidents keep happening across the country and the answer is simple if you continue to train officers the same way we have been you're going to get the same result this research says that this system that we have here in the US is built to train officers quickly and cheaply is it too difficult to change that dynamic you've, you've kind of talked about that but let's go deeper on this issue how do you get these academies, these cities, these police departments to change their approach? Well, you know, I think it gets at what do we want police to do, you know, and the fact that the, the way police are taught traditionally is, you know, sort of one dimensional. We're trying to get police to think more as decision makers, as opposed to in some of these academies, they're paramilitary kind of organizations. And so this is really about using effective adult learning methods and really thinking about, you know, this as an evolving uh, function that academies would have and, and combining their training with the field training officer. You know, I'm sure you've heard this, Jeff, before that what you, you know, you hear someone goes through the academy and then they go out on the street. And then the first thing the field training officer says is forget everything in the academy. Well, if you look at you know, Minneapolis and the George Floyd uh, tragedy, a murder, what you see there is a field training officer who is the officer that winds up, you know, murdering George Floyd. And so you say to yourself, how can we get a very different perspective on training from the beginning in terms of selection and so forth to looking at it from adult learning standpoint, looking at decision making, and then looking at what happens to them when they hit the street, why should they hit the street and not come back to the academy? Why should the field training officers we have be so different than what happens in the academy? Those are the kind of the big picture uh, questions that we asked in this report is really a sea change in how we do things. You know, we talk about in the report about Monday morning quarterbacking, meaning any incident that happens in this country with this video, video now allows us to do and to look at things, to slow them down, to ask questions, to get officers to think about their decision-making. And sometimes decision-making may mean stepping back, slowing things down, using time and distance. So it's really a very different kind of thinking. It's not, by the way, just adding, making uh, uh, the academy experience longer. It's really making it more of an experience where, you know, we're getting, you know, young people, developing them to be decision-makers, there are going to be times that you want officers to operate in a paramilitary environment. Uvalde is one of those cases where there are you know, situations like that where, in fact, time is your enemy and you have to move and you have to move efficiently. Chuck, you've been doing this work for a long time, and I think, I think you're the perfect person to answer this question that I'm about to throw at you. Since George Floyd's death... Do you think policing has gotten better or worse? I think it's. I, I think that what you see in American policing uh, is incremental change. 
And I think, you know, the lessons from the George Floyd murder are many. You know, you look at, you know, Derek Chauvin's past. You look at those young rookies that got there. So issues, for example, like uh, ICAT de-escalation and ABLE intervening. I mean, departments are starting to recognize they, that, that those other officers who were there, they have a duty to intervene. That's happening. De-escalation, ICAT, slowing things down and using time and distance. So those things are happening. So, uh, you know, it would be a mistake to say nothing has happened. I think you're seeing that happening uh, sporadically around the country. But I think what we're really talking about here is if we want American police to change, we have to make some fundamental changes in how they are selected, supervised, and trained. And the answer can simply be incremental change. If we want fundamental change, then we have to look at how do we get academies to reflect the thinking of progressive communities and of officers. You know, I, I compare to what the police do in many ways to others that deal with life and death situations. And if you're looking at doctors, the training that they get, because think about it, when you're in a crisis, you know, the best thing that can happen is having a cop who knows what they're doing and, and knows and is well-trained. And the worst thing that can happen is someone who isn't well-trained or poorly selected. So this is, this is America needs to recognize that at this moment, if we really want to fundamentally change police, then let's step back and look at the training, which, you know, it, it, it has met the needs uh, for a number of years. But now today, the standards are higher. We're holding police higher. We have body-worn video that shows how people act in certain situations. Why not use that body-worn video, you know, to step back and say, hey, how would we handle this if this happened in our community? I just feel like, Jeff, you know, we, we can't talk about incremental change when we have fundamental challenges. This has to be a significant investment in changing policing in a way that's a win-win for everyone. But how, how can you do that if, you know, in, in some of these progressive communities that, where you say police should reflect uh, what's needed in the community. In some of these progressive communities, post George Floyd, you had calls for defund the police. You had DAs elected who um, wanted to decriminalize what police saw as crimes that needed to be enforced. So if you have fundamental disagreements like that, how can there be this incremental change in policing? Well, I think, Jeff, I think the country is in a different place today. I really don't think anyone's talking about defunding the police anymore. Uh, you know, that was that was what was unexpected. You know, usually after, you know, Rodney King or Amado Diallo shooting or any of these significant um, events, you know, there's always been the need for you know, some kind of training or reform or whatever. This So this this period of defund the police was sort of, it, it wasn't expected. No one really knew what to make of it. 
Uh, because if you if you talk if your solution to the George Floyd murder was to defund the police, then that wouldn't prevent another incident like that happening. All that would do is, you know, take resources away. I mean, usually the response has been, how do we have to invest in the police? But I think to your question, you know, I really believe that people, uh, what, what's happened is we've had an increase in violent crime, particularly homicides, shootings, um, and I think, you know, and especially if you look in Minneapolis, where it was sort of ground zero for, you know, this whole, uh, you know, issue of policing, uh, they have lost half of their police force, and they have seen homicides uh, accelerate uh, in some of the, you know, in most impoverished areas of Minneapolis, the north side. So there's a recognition that what communities need is really good police. Um, not just more police, but good police. And even the people, Jeff, who live in those communities would be the first to tell you that they don't want someone on the street who, you know, has been assaulting people and robbing people. That And, and who, do, who are they assaulting and robbing? They're robbing people in that community. So they would be the first to say, look, you know, we need to invest in the police. You know, this, we don't say we don't want the police we need good police. We need, you know, well-trained and well-supervised police. And I think that's what happened uh, in this in these past two years, is you've seen that from the defund the police to invest in the police. And, and where we come from is we say, you know, more training by itself is not sufficient. It, what we really talk about is to look at the training and, and ask yourselves, you know, when, I mean, when I'm called up, and I'm asked, and, and someone says, you know, why did the police do what they did on a video? And most of the time what I say is they did what they did because that's how they were trained. So if we want to impact, uh, you know, police-involved shootings or use of force, all of those things, then we have to ask ourselves, why are the police trained in this way? And what do we have to do different? And we do have training now that is, you know, really uh, turns on its head traditional training. You know, we'd have outmoded thinking like 21-foot rule. So in America, for years, Jeff, there would be this, you know, uh, policy that in, taught in academies that if someone with a knife was within 21 feet of you, you were, you know, pretty much justified in shooting them if they, they closed that gap. And, you know, that just didn't make any sense. There was no research on it. That the person who invented it actually didn't mean it to be interpreted the way it did. However, if you went into every police academies across the country up till five years ago, that was the conventional thinking, the 21-foot rule. And there's other kinds of training like that that are outmoded, but they're still in existence. Who did you – who was surveyed uh, as you – or as Perf put this study or this report together? Uh, we put it together. It was a survey of, uh, you know, a number of departments. And then we, we consulted with a number of experts who, um, you know, that's what they do in training. We, we consulted a number of people. We used the survey. And uh, we talked to a number of academics like Seth Stoughton, an academic at, uh, I believe, the University of South Carolina. I see. What do you what do you hope happens with this report? Who do you want to see it? 
Well, you know, I think this report is uh, not just for uh, police departments, but it's for policymakers. It's for those who are trying, who think hard and want to think about how do we get the best policing we can in America? Well, I think it starts at, you know, the highest levels. I mean, it, it, it's, I've shared this with the Justice Department. I think, you know, so there's a role for the federal government here. There's a role for states here and there's a role for local municipalities. Doing something about the police means investing and fundamentally thinking through how to train police in, in a way that makes them, you know, some of the you know, most uh, qualified, tr- well-trained and well-thought-of uh, parts of society. This is important. I mean, it, 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 we look at the number of officer-involved shootings. You know, the Washington Post tracks it, and they usually they come up with about a thousand. And I get called and I get asked, well, why hasn't this number gone down? And I think the answer has to be that we can't keep doing what we have been doing, expecting, you know, significant differences. We have to rethink, you know, how we train in a way that's um, that meets professional standards. And that's what this report is about. It's about adult learning. It's about an academy that focuses on critical decision model. It's about Monday morning quarterbacking. It's about getting officers to be better problem solvers. And, and that's, you know, that's what our hope is. Chuck Wexler, Executive Director of the Police Executive Research Forum. Thanks for your time. Thank you, Jeff. Always a pleasure. So you're going shopping. I don't know. Perhaps you've already been to the malls for some Black Friday shopping. What can we expect as we head deep into the holiday season? It's amazing. Kind of sneaks up on you. To talk about some of the deals that may or may not be out there is Jordan Holman, New York Times business reporter, who covers retail. Jordan, thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. All right. So this is the time of year where I start thinking about holiday gifts. What am I going to buy But I also started thinking about, well, are the malls going to be packed? I mean, how is retail doing these days? So it depends on what segment of retail you're looking at. So the holiday season, obviously, the apparel retailers, you know, the department stores of the world, the Targets, the Walmarts, this is their Super Bowl, essentially. And so they've had a lot of struggles starting probably in the spring of 2022, where uh, Americans started buying new things that they weren't expecting. So, you know, we've had two years of the pandemic where people were really buying cozy things and knickknacks for the house. But as inflation started to become more of a reality, people pulled back on things that they felt were discretionary. And that really took a lot of retailers by surprise. So now as they enter this very crucial time, um, the fourth quarter holidays, they're they're really being cautious about what uh, demand might look like. They know that they need to push more deals because people are more price conscious. So it could be a mixed bag. Mixed bag. So what does that look like after this pandemic? Uh, Does that mean things are, are getting better, improving at the same rate that they were before the pandemic? What does it mean? So during the pandemic, retailers really didn't have to discount. Um, they could price things pretty much where they wanted and people were willing to buy, you know, because we had less options of where to spend our money. And so 
the past two years were really strong revenue years for retailers. Now we're kind of seeing uh, them fall back to reality, back to 2019 levels where people aren't flush with the cash that they were um, just this time last year. They know that they actually do have to offer those, you know, 40% discounts or people are going to look for other options. And so it just is kind of like a normalization. Retailers' profits aren't expected to be as high as it was last year. Um, consumers are expected to shop because Americans always shop for Christmas, but it just might um, not be as, they might not be looking at those like really big ticket items. It might be a little bit more conservative um, in what they're spending on. How has retail changed as we emerge from the pandemic? So you probably won't see doorbusters this year. Um, And that's for a few reasons. Uh, During 2020, it wasn't a safe thing to do. Obviously, people were staying away from stores. And so retailers kind of just got, you know, well, what we saw, they put it on pause. They also said they weren't going to open on Thanksgiving to give workers a break um, because retail workers were working probably harder than they ever had. And so those are two things that just aren't coming back. A lot of retailers are going to stay closed on Thanksgiving and just... um, open on Black Friday. You won't see the, you have to be here at four or 5 a.m. to get the best deal. Deals will be spread out throughout the day. Um, And then you will see the return to store, but a lot of people are still going to shop online. So it might not be as uh, dramatic of images as we used to for a Black Friday. Oh, Um, well, maybe that's a good thing for some people who will Descend on the malls, you know, uh, no matter what on Black Friday, like my daughters who just love to go there and thankfully don't invite me to go with them. Yeah. Um, (laughs) What else can you tell us about this holiday season that perhaps the average shopper hasn't considered yet? Hmm. Great question. I mean, I was my mind immediately went to inflation, but everyone has considered this. So hear me out. So the spending for holiday sales is expected to go up. uh, The National Retail Federation has said they expect holiday sales to increase 6 to 8% compared to last year. But when you look at the rate of inflation right now, that actually doesn't keep pace. So one thing that shoppers should probably consider is, yes, they might be seeing a deal. It might not be the it might not be the amazing deal that they would have seen in 2019 just because prices across the board have gone up. So that's a consideration. If you can do price checking across um, you know, different retailers' websites before you actually go into the store, that is probably a smart thing to do. And just knowing that um, if you that Black Friday is not the end-all be-all. Retailers will be pushing deals throughout the season. You might find it on an unusual day, but um, they just know that the power is kind of in consumers' hands this year in terms of when we're going to actually like push push purchase on something. Jordan Holman, business reporter covering retail from the New York Times. Thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about holiday travel. I don't know about you, but I want to escape Washington and see if I can spend a few days somewhere else. Somewhere else where, you know, nobody's talking about politics. You know, I just want to, as that Southwest commercial says, want to get away. Yeah, and I'm sure you do too. So what kind of deals are out there if you just want to go somewhere 
explore somewhere, escape somewhere. Don Gilbertson, who is the travel columnist for the Wall Street Journal, joins us now. And and Don, I I tend to travel a lot for CBS News. And one of the airports I've been to recently, which has gotten a facelift, it continues to get that facelift, but that's LaGuardia. I think it looks great. Oh, it's amazing. It, it looks amazing. It looks like the European airports that I've visited recently, but on your Best and worst list of airports for 2022, LaGuardia, it ranks last. Well, that's because, yes, it is a beautiful place. And uh, we would we would think that that will start showing up in our rankings more. But but one thing we have to note is, you know, a place can be as pretty as, you know, as like you said, any European airport. But what matters most to travelers is, you know, whether their flights, you know, depart and, and arrive on time. And so reliability is a huge factor in our airport rankings and LaGuardia, you know, along with its uh, neighbors, uh, Newark and JFK just don't fare well there because they're so congested. How do these airports, though, how do they rise up this list? I mean, when you talk about Newark, JFK, LaGuardia, everybody's coming to New York. Everybody wants to come to New York. So how 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 does an airport alleviate the congestion how do they do that well if, if you've been you know paying if you've been checking um you know some of the headlines this summer about you know all the issues the summer travel woes and everything especially at the beginning of the summer uh you know the ceo of united airlines scott kirby has been very outspoken uh, about uh newark in particular you know since they have a since they have a huge hub there and his argument is that airports Airports with capacity constraints, you know, airports that have no room to grow, they can't add a runway and so forth, that those airports should only have the number of flights scheduled that they can handle. And, you know, he's been kind of, you know, beating the drum with uh, airport operators and with the FAA to try to get that more in balance. Uh, not everybody is in agreement with him. Uh, you know, Spirit's a, Spirit's a big player there. So that's really a situation that we're going to have to watch and see how it unfolds. And all right, so what airport or airports are at the top of the list? Well, yeah, this may surprise anybody who's flown through there uh, in the past several years, but uh, the winner uh, of the major airport category is San Francisco International Airport. Uh, you know, so many of us have, have been fogged in there or, you know, had delays, you know, kind of can be the butt of joke sometimes. But uh, in our survey period, they just absolutely shined in uh, on-time performance. There's a big reason for that, though. And what is the big reason? Well, unlike a lot of airports across the country, you know, we, we've all been to airports and waited in long lines. And, and you know, it seems like it's 2019 again at, at many airports. But in San Francisco, while it's busy and coming back, they are still down significantly from pre-pandemic levels. And that's largely due to two factors. Number one, they uh, rely a lot on flights to and from Asia. And much of that region is, you know, remains closed, particularly China. And then another thing is that they have, uh, you know, huge base of technology companies and their corporate travel, their business travel is not back and likely not back to be, you know, likely not going to be back up there soon, given all the layoffs we've seen recently. 
So it's just so basically the the good news for San Francisco passengers and for the airport itself is that it's just a heck of a lot busier, uh, less busy on those runways. I see. And what about midsize airports across the country? How are they doing? Uh, they're 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 doing well. In fact, the overall winner, uh, you know, if we we divide them into two categories, but the overall, you know, if you look at our the fifty airports, the number one winner that was, you know, uh, is Sacramento, you know, in Northern California, and you know, Sacramento, uh, they they generally have uh, good weather. They're more inland than than San Francisco, and they've also instituted a major customer service plan, you know, where they've empowered employees at all levels. Um, you know, to kind of have this all hands on deck approach. And I was talking to the airport director and I mean, they even have their landscapers helping direct passengers. You know, if you're walking into the airport and, you know, you might, you might ask for directions on how to get to your gate or how do you get to the ticket counter, the parking garage, you know, from a landscaper. (laughs) They get a lot of compliments on it. Uh, Yeah. You can, you can trust the information. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) They train everybody. Okay, good. And the California, the California, uh, in the terms of the midsize ones, I mean, it was a, it was a trifecta in California. So uh, for the midsize ones, it was Sacramento, San Diego, and San Jose. So California had quite the showing in our survey, at least in, you know, overall and in terms, especially of reliability, they didn't um, necessarily shine, at least San Francisco didn't in terms of value. All right. Is is there a midsize airport that we should avoid? The worst, and I just don't think of them as as midsize because of you know where it's located. But the worst midsize airport is LaGuardia. Oh wait, LaGuardia is considered a midsize airport. Yeah, yeah, because it's based on it's based on uh, it's it's the cutoff is ba- you know it's based on their passenger counts. I see. So if LaGuardia is midsize, JFK must be. <laughs> Big airport? Yes. Yeah. JFK is in the uh, major airport category. And again, they didn't shine. I mean, JFK was only a notch above uh, Newark at the bottom of the list. And again, it's it's uh, reliability uh, is a huge factor in our rankings. And uh, JFK, for instance, in, in our survey period, you know, just 75% of their flights were on time. I see. Okay. And it was well over 80 for San Francisco. Okay, I'd love to go through the whole list, but we're not going to do that. We're, no, um, no, and, no thanks. And if you're listening to this uh, program, you know, check out the Wall Street Journal where, you're, where you'll see if your favorite airport is on that list at the low end or the top end. All right, so another thing that people look for, uh, especially as they're traveling between Thanksgiving and Christmas, are there any cheap flights available? Or is everything expensive now? Well, everything is relatively, you know, much more expensive now. Uh, you know, historically, the, uh, one of the greatest periods, if not the greatest uh, period for travel, at least domestically, has been, you know, like right after Thanksgiving, after all the Thanksgiving travelers are home. So say maybe like the the Tuesday after, right up until, you know, um, the middle or late, you know, right before the Christmas rush begins. And there's definitely still those deals out there, you know, everywhere, but New York city where of course people want to go see the holiday lights and festivities. Uh, But one thing airlines are saying is that because, you know, a lot of us have flexible work arrangements now uh, you might not see as many good deals because they don't have to, they don't have to dangle those low fares because if you're somebody with a flexible schedule, you know, you could say say you went home for Thanksgiving or you went to Hawaii for Thanksgiving. You could conceivably, if you have a flexible enough work arrangement, you could conceivably stay there 
until Christmas. So, so there's more demand for the for these days than there have been in the past. So I think there's still going to be a plenty of deals there. All right. Is there anything that we haven't talked about that you think we should discuss? Well, if I, and this is totally, it's not it, since we're kind of going all over the place. I mean, if if you're looking for like any recommendation, you know, for people in terms of uh, ways to avoid lines. I mean, I, I don't think a lot of people realize, especially for holiday travel, that, you know, you don't need to, you don't need to have um, TSA pre-check or clear to um, get a primo spot in the security line at, at many airports today. Uh, so I, I think people should check their airline websites and you can make a reservation for free. Uh, Phoenix Airport, for example, has it. I, I just made it uh, for a reservation for someone who doesn't have uh, pre-check and clear. And they give you a time. They say, okay, what time is your flight? Here's your, your time slot at the security line. And, you know, you get to skip the line basically. So I, I don't think a lot of people are aware of that. It's not at every airport, but it, it's definitely a time saver and worth checking your, uh, your airport's website. Does it cost you more? No, free. Oh, free of charge. Even better. Free. I see. All right. So what other tips, what other money saving tips can you offer? You know, a, a couple of things I would, I'd, you know, recommend, you know, check out, we've had, a, we've had a couple of new budget airlines, you know, um, enter the market uh, in the past, say year and a half. And, you know, they've been growing rapidly. So, so see if maybe they are offering flights in your market. And these airlines um, include Breeze Airways, which is, uh, was founded by the founder of JetBlue and an airline called Avello. Now, again, they're not going to be in every city. Uh, Avello's got uh, places, in, uh, bases in uh, California and is really growing in New Haven, Connecticut. So anyway, I, it, they spent, these, these airlines may not be on people's radar and you could find a great deal there. Also, don't, don't rule out, um, don't rule out, you know, they get a bad rap from a lot of people and they're, you know, they're the butt of late night jokes. But, you know, the budget airlines like Spirit and Frontier and Allegiant, you know, for some people, that's that's all they need. You know, they just simply want to fly somewhere. They can pack super light. They just want to fly somewhere and see their family or maybe take a short vacation. So so just, you know, check those websites. Don't necessarily rule them out and don't just stick with, you know, your old standbys. You might you might find a deal. You might like it. The only caveat I have with with some of those airlines, any of those ones I just mentioned, if you have to be somewhere, like say you're going to a wedding or a reunion or just someplace you have to, a cruise, you have to be, um, just beware, like build in a cushion on both ends because, you know, they don't have as many flights as the big guys do. Don Gilbertson of the Wall Street Journal. Thanks for your time. Thanks very much for having me. That is America Change Forever for this week. Thanks to Paul Woody Woodhull in District Productive. Don't forget to check your local listings to see when ACF airs in your community. For now, I'm Jeff Begays, and that is how America changed forever. Are you ready for an all-new season of Survivor? You better be, because Survivor 46 is here, and it's 90 minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss. Better yet, after each episode, there's a brand new episode of On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. 
Each week, we go behind the scenes of the episode's biggest moments, taking you into the how and the why things happened. And this season, we're very lucky to be joined by an expert, the winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris. What is up? I'm thrilled to be joining this team and to be giving you my take on how and the why players made the moves they did, what it takes to outwit, outplay, and outlast, and to ask Jeff some questions because even after 26 days out there, there is still a lot for me to uncover. Bring it, D. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.